Today's Daily DVR is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Cufflinks.com. Head on over to Cufflinks.com and use code DVR20 to save 20% off your order, no minimum. You've heard me talk about Cufflinks before. You know all the awesome, geeky, as well as super high-class products they have. And if you check their homepage, they're always listing a bunch of deals for you. And, of course, I did just tell you one, DVR20. So go ahead and use that. And you know what? You still got to look good, people. We know you got to be careful out there. We still got corona going on, but you can still look good if you're zooming it or even if you're just walking past someone looking outside a window. So head on over to cufflinks.com today. Use code DVR20 and save. Thank you, Cufflinks. Welcome back to Daily DVR. My name is Zach, so I have a great guest. Mike Hull is with me today. But before Mike talks, I do just want to remind everyone that you can go to DVRpodcast.com, check out all our podcasts. Now, I know that impeachment which Gina and I covered, just got released on Hulu. So we may have some people coming in from that. And we had some people come to the Facebook group talking about having just uh, watched Mayor of Kingston, Kingstown, and listened to Heath and I. So that's another pod that we do. And Mike here with us this evening was the third original participant in the history of the DVR podcast network, which started with me and Aaron. And then Mike came on an episode of Lost Mythos. And you know, Mike, I've been listening to those and releasing some of them odds and ends on the Patreon. And uh, you were on like the third or fourth show of Lost Mythos. Was it that early? Yeah, it was that early. I thought that you didn't come on until way later. And no, you were there from the very beginning, dude. It was like, I think it was, you know, Aaron was probably like, oh, man, I can't make it, man. <laughs> I stubbed my toe. I stubbed my toe. Uh, so <laughs> so wow, that's like, it. That's a deep, deep cut, Aaron stubbing his toe. But I might be the only person in the world who who got that joke, uh-huh. but I got that joke. Carry on. Yep. That's a callback, baby. 20 years in making. Um, but yeah, you came on to Lost Mythos way early. I, I was kind of surprised. I was like, yeah, I thought it was later. But nope, you were there from the very beginning. You did Lost Mythos and Game of Thrones, too. Many Game of yeah. Thrones episodes. Have you since watched Game of Thrones again since the last season premiered? No, no, haven't even considered the possibility. And if somebody asked me to, I would (laughs) shudder in their face. Really? Yeah. Really? Well, let me tell you something. I just rewatched the entire series from beginning to end. And let me tell you something. I definitely now more agree with the likes of yourself who was so disappointed in the last season and the last couple seasons, really, right? Maybe three seasons, last three. Once, <laughs> once the books were over, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, that's fair. Once they got past the material that they had from George, 
you were, and I definitely saw more of the drop rewatching it, just kind of chilling, not think about podcasting it or anything. But I also did appreciate it. Have you though, as a filmmaker, and we're here tonight, we're going to talk about your movie Betrayal at Attica, and we're going to talk about a bunch of other shit. But have you thought more about from the production standpoint, like appreciating it that way? <laughs> You've been trying to get me to say to. <laughs> What do you think? To be like, yes, okay. No, I'm not trying to get you to do anything. Since like season six, you've been. I'm not trying. I'm not. I'm not trying. Really, I'm just asking. I think that asking. I I think that uh, that that it was sort of you know uh, the blessing and the curse in a way of like you know they because okay I'll ask you a quick question that I promise I'm gonna that is relevant. What is your like favorite moment in the whole series? What's like, this is the moment in the whole fucking thing. Um, uh, well, the moment that sold me on it being epic was when they cut Ned's head off at the end of season one. Okay. Fair enough. Right. But I think my favorite moment in the entire series, and I think a lot of people, this will resonate with a lot of people is hold the door. Right? Which was much later, which was so much much later. Yeah, and and in a lot of ways, I feel like after hold the door, everything that's when everything really started to to sort of fall apart. And I think that what happened was that they were, you know, the production scale. They sort of counted on that to save them, mm-hmm. you know, I and it became such a sort of you know such a sort of logistical complication i mean we remembered this dude like you know people are trying to like paparazzi's trying to snap photos from helicopters and you know they're in like the old town of <laughs> I mean, you know we remember sort of how much interest there was and all that kind of things and it became this logistical nightmare to create and also at the same time they had more money than ever before and they've they've got access to the i don't know who was exactly sort of doing the CGI but they've got access to the greatest fucking CGI team on the face of the planet obviously right like with i mean and so i think that once you started to get away from those like hard earned story elements like hold the door which there was nothing technically or filmmaking there was nothing fancy about those shots it was sort of just cuts back and forth. You know what I mean? It wasn't, there wasn't a huge amount of CGI. There was no dragons. Yeah, it was, it was emotional. Yeah. It was earned and it had been hard earned over the entire series that moment. Right. And so they, it's it sort of two things happen at once. One, they lost a lot of those hard earned moments. No fault of theirs. There's the book wasn't done. Right. Those like, it's I, it's kind of impossible to recreate stuff like that. He's been earning that hold the door moment since the fucking 90s, dude. <laughs> right? Like for some of his fan base, including some of us who were so invested in that show. And when you lose that as a resource and you try to sort of fill in with, you know, location and CGI, it's just it's I, to me it is it's just impossible to do, yeah. and to me the show just feels a lot more sort of emotionally hollow, more than anything else. Great. And that is the thing is I don't think anybody who was criticizing it felt like it it went downhill in terms of the production standard because I don't it didn't. The costumes were fucking aces from top to bottom. 
The music was aces from top to bottom. The dragons looked dope as fuck. And then one of them became like a frozen zombie dragon and it still looked cool as shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so to me, like the criticisms were not that that's really sort of, you can, it's sort of two things you can say like, yes, it's a nice day. And a lot of terrible things are happening to yeah. me today. They were not, right? I agree with you. They were not working they weren't working up to those points. They were just giving them to us. Mm -hmm. They were just like, here's the, the crazy battle scene. We're going to get to it really quick. Whereas before it took so long to get up to, to see like the, the rise of Tywin or whatever, you know? And mm -hmm. then the fall, of course. The, really? The or what was the dude, the, the guy that kept attacking people with dogs? I mean, like... You know, that was good stuff, man. That guy was pure <laughs> evil, bro. Like that Ramsey guy, you Bolton. just like Ramsey, bro. Like you hated that motherfucker in your guts if you watched that show, you know? And it was a similar feeling to I remember um who was the guy in Lost who was like running the other team for the longest time. Ben. You know? Yeah, Ben, thank you. I saw the actor that played Ben. I worked at CBS News at 58th and, and like between 10th and 11th Avenue in New York for the longest time. And I guess he lived around there because I used to see him walking his dog. Right. And like, we're in the middle of watching this show and I hated that motherfucker in my soul. <laughs> like we were so invested in that show and I would see that actor out walking around and just like have these visceral emotional feelings just because of his face. And like, I'm a grown up and a professional. So I know that he's not right. I never went and accosted him and his little dog, but like, I just, I had those feelings naturally every time I saw him and that's hard earned, you know, I don't know why the ending didn't feel that way to me because I was watching those characters for just as long as I was watching all the other characters. But I think that's another thing that they kind of got bitten by is they cast two people who are not very good actors in the two biggest roles. And the fact that they weren't very good actors just became more who's, and more who, obvious. Who's that? John and, and Danny. <laughs> they're both, oh. they're so bad in the last I, season. dude. Yeah. They're so bad. I, and I, as I think they had, they both have the potential to be good. You know, I saw she was in a, like a romantic comedy. And I was like, Oh, she's much better at this when she can be lighter and funnier. Like that suits her. Yeah. Her she is. I've seen interviews with her. Yeah. I've seen yeah. interviews with her and she's funny and she seems but really I easy he was to talk to. Good. But I, I mean, look, I'm not going to, I, dude, everybody I'm looks around. good when you're playing against Ned, when you're playing against, <laughs> the, you know what I mean? Like that guy makes everybody look better. Yeah, the same true. thing with, you know, with, I when mean, um, older people, that is something to be said too, is that, when as, the younger cast had to take over from the older cast, it there was kind of a letdown where there'd be scenes and you'd be like, when is that really important person? When is Tywin or right Queen of Thorns? Dude, when, when you're are, watching when yeah. you're watching Cersei and Peter Dinklage yes, together in yeah, one room acting together, they like that. everybody else in the scene, even if they're terrible, you just have to cut to them while they say their little shit, and then you come back to the good actors, and it makes everybody look better. And as we get deeper and deeper into the show and deeper and deeper into the story, more and more of those people are killed off. There's more and more focus just on John and Danny. These people have to carry more and more of the story by themselves. And it yeah, just didn't, didn't do it anything just, with Tyrion. That's the thing I really noticed. 
also more yeah. so is that he does, he gets to a certain point when once he kind of joins Danny, it's all downhill. He never there all the fun, those fun moments that we enjoyed with him are also the moments where uh, he liked to read books and he too he was supposed to be like they put all of that on Sam and they wouldn't like kind of let right. Tyrion do that anymore. Because he was kind and, of like a wizard guy, too, when we first met him. He knew so much stuff, you know? Yep. And when you listen, you know, when I hear people talk about the show, like, you didn't really hear people complaining about Sam and Gilly. Because that shit was nice. It was, you know what I mean? Like, they were good. They were good together. Like, their bits of their story made sense. It, that wasn't what people were complaining about. You know what I mean? It was the really big picture stuff. And that's one of those things. Like, what are you supposed to, like, change actors in season seven? No, you're not going to do that. You're stuck with these people you cast as teenagers. It's a problem in television. <laughs> so let like, me ask you this. Are you excited for the upcoming House of the Dragon? I literally don't even know if I'll watch it. Oh, really? I have, okay. like, I have, I enjoyed reading the books and, like, so I don't know, man. Like, I, at this point, it's very hard for me to imagine sort of escaping from our world right now in any sort of significant way. Um, you know, there's just sort of a lot going on right now and it's very hard for me to picture. Like, I don't know why it's not like there wasn't anything going on when we were watching game of Thrones. It's not like I wasn't doing heavyweight stuff when we were watching that show. Right. Like that's, it's not sort of a commentary on, on, you know, whatever you want to call it, entertainment, (laughs) you know, it's just sort of like where my life is at right in this moment. Like I'm consuming very little that isn't, you know, sort of directed towards some work that I'm doing. And, you know, when I'm not doing that, I'm, it's literally just fucking Peppa Pig or that fucking shark song again. And again, again. that still exists, (laughs) baby. Don't make me dude. Um, yeah, so so I haven't it really I haven't thought about it yet. Now I can tell you what's going to happen, uh, which is that it's going to come out, and then my Twitter is going to be completely chock full of it, oh, of and I'm going to be like, "Oh, we should watch that Game of Thrones yeah. show," and then we'll end up watching it because Twitter told me to, you know. Yes, of course. Well, uh, let, let's. You mentioned this stuff that you're doing, the real world stuff, and that was the impetus. Long ago, I think it was August, I was like, let's do a podcast because your movie was coming out. But we never got to do it. But now we're here. The movie has been out. Why don't you tell us a little bit what the movie is? But let's not talk too much about, I'd rather talk a little bit more to you about like how you actually made it, that kind of stuff. Um, Maybe if you're willing to a little bit of how you got it onto HBO, how that worked out, little behind the scenes kind of stuff, because I think that the film you're in it and you're part of it too, kind of speaks for itself. So we don't need to reiterate it. But why don't you talk a little bit about Betrayal at Attica? Uh, Well, it's just we we are. I know this sort of breaks the evergreen rules but today's uh tuesday march 8th 2022 we are speaking two days after the death of dennis cunningham um who was one of the main lawyers involved in the attica prison 
rebellion and he was a, a mentor to Liz and, and, you know, he was a really, I'll tell you a very, a very brief Dennis Cunningham story that will situate him for you. Dennis Cunningham was Fred Hampton's lawyer in Chicago. And Fred Hampton said, man, we need to start a people's law office because every time I leave the house, I get arrested. And so Dennis Cunningham and Jeff Haas started the people's law office in Chicago. And now, and they were, they represented Fred Hampton until the day he was murdered. And then they represented his widow and family after um, murdered by the FBI. Let me finish that sentence. Sorry. And the Chicago police department. Um, And so, so, you know, he was a, a, just a person who was very brave and um, very, you know, revolutionary in his own way and thought a lot about how our country could be better. And one of the main things he did was he worked on Attica. So like, that's how I knew him was through his, his work on Attica. So um, Attica, my film betrayal at Attica is mostly around um, Liz Fink, who is another one of the lawyers for the Attica um, Attica Brothers and part of Attica Brothers Legal Defense, but she was sort of mentored by Dennis and, and you know, always talked about him as a person she respected and loved. Um, so we're planning a memorial for Dennis right now. And, and you know, it's uh, like, it's a heavy time, but, you know, it's, I mean, this guy fought this fight for a long time, man. Like, and we're all better off for the work that he did. And it's, you know, that's sort of the thing that we're trying to remember right now. So Dennis Cunningham, that's not really an answer to your question, is it? No, that's Um, okay. But it (laughs) introduces Liz, who I remember when we were living together in Jersey city and you were like, Hey, I got to go walk this crazy lady's dog you're going to love her, man. You got to come out. We're going to get really high. And she's going to tell you some crazy stories. So I think we got on a train and went and did that and hung out. We did get high. And we she did tell some crazy stories. And I was instantly, when I met her, I instantly was like, holy shit. She reminded me so much of my first history teacher, Dr. Gaines, who was really just like Liz. Like she talked like Mm -hmm. her. She like had the same attitude, had the same passions. And I was like, wow, this lady is really like an important person. And of course she was, she, I think she talked a bit about her life uh, when we were there. And I think, I don't know, I met her a couple times But the thing I remember is I thought it was so interesting. It was like Mike is friends with like this older lady who has a lot of crazy kind of New York stories and life stories. And years later, this turns into you. I mean, you continue to help her out and be a part of her life. And then you she left you all this all this material to make a movie out of it. She, you know, she, it's interesting because she super did not give a shit about the movie. Um, and uh, it's, it's really my wife who like talked her into actually sitting for the interview because of course, like See, I make movies, the, I'm thinking about movies 
from the from the beginning you know as soon as she sort of shows me this archive but yeah i was i would go over to her house every now and then and and you know it was on and off because she would have i can remember you even saying that back in the day hall being like this is movies man documentaries because obviously we're both into docs as soon as we met you know i was like obsessed and you're like this is a there's a documentary here well i you know and and i think like she she is the kind of person and you could tell this immediately who actually can sustain a documentary on her own and that is a very rare person and you know that like it requires this sort of combination Mm -hmm. of like charisma and talking but (laughs) also yeah but you also have to be uh sort of you have to know enough about a subject that people care enough you know what i mean like it's a very weird and sort of unique individual who can carry a film by themselves and she was that person and you could sort of tell that from the beginning what i didn't know is that she had all of this evidence from the attica rebellion that showed the state you know that showed the state planning it that showed the severe massacre that shows everything that's in the movie and i didn't know that she had all that material but at one point i was you know so on and off as she would sort of depending on her health i would go over and help her out with different things so i started going over a lot um in like you know 2012 or 13 i started going over there pretty frequently she was needing to like she was having kidney troubles and stuff and i walk her dog get some groceries bring her some reefer just shit like that and as you experienced every time i would go over there you know, we're sitting and talking shit and I would meet Attica brothers, like people who are actually a part of the Attica prison rebellion. I would meet at her apartment, you know? Um, And then at some point, uh, you know, I said to her finally, like, why don't we do an interview? You know what I mean? Because the other thing is, it's one thing to like, listen to her sort of like tell these stories, but at some point she also would start complaining about movies and books and like she would start sort of complaining about all the other (laughs) projects that have been done and how nobody really did it right and they all go you know talk to this person or talk to that person you know she's everybody's a fucking critic right um and and so at some point i just kind of said to her like like i know how to make movies so just let me make whatever movie you want you just tell me this is what the movie should be and i'll go make it Right. And I'll send you things like we can go work on it together, you know, but the point is like, we can make a movie the way you want it to be. And she, and, and, you know, she would always sort of just start complaining about something else. She didn't really like ever engage with that very seriously. And then one day I said that to her and she's like, all right, come here. And she walks me down the hall in her apartment and she opens a closet door and she's got three bankers boxes in this, in the floor of this closet. And there's, hundreds of photographs autopsy photos you know scene photos there's i mean hundreds of photographs and there's hours and hours of videotape there was uh uh one of the prison guards filmed uh over an hour worth of material on a 1971 video camera bro like this guy had a fucking strap around his shoulder and like basically a vcr on his hip Right. And then a big ass cable coming out of this VCR that was connected to a camera that if you didn't know better, looked like, you know, like sort of a consumer, like, uh, you know, 16 or eight minutes, not a 16 and eight millimeter little, you know, vacation or camera. Right. But it's got this big fat fucking cable running out to a VCR on his hip. So he's got all this video, this it's black and white, but it's a video. It's I mean, if it weren't such a horrific event, it would be cool 
to see basically anything else shot on this 50 year old video camera, you know? Um, and then she had a copy of the McKay commission report, which is a, a documentary film that was made by the New York PBS station that was broadcast like twice and has never been available to the public after that. Like she had, you know, um, deposition tapes of Attica brothers during the, the lead up to the trials in 1994. I think these tapes are from where these guys come in and tell their stories. She just had this, inc- all of this incredible material. So, and Oh, I'm sorry. Well, she didn't think of it as material for a movie. She thought of it as like history that needed to be in a museum somewhere. And that's what she wanted me to do was to preserve this archive. And if what I needed to preserve this archive was for her to do an interview so I can make a fucking another fucked up shitty stupid movie, then she was going to do that as long as I would agree to preserve this archive. Now, did she Uh, the question I would have, she had all this material. And when she died, she left that to you, right? Like she bequeathed it to you, correct? She she literally bequeathed it to to Pearl Smith, who is Frank Smith's widow, um, Big Black, who was okay. an Attica brother and one of her best friends and, and someone who she worked with for 30 plus years. She, in all but paperwork, gave it to me. She, the thing is, when she died, like, she died, nobody, she didn't, like, there was, she fell, you know, she went to walk the dog one day. Um, if we're being honest, she went to walk the dog one day because I hadn't gotten there yet. and The dog had to piss. And so I was supposed to walk the dog on this particular trip, and I was not there for it. And, uh you know, I didn't set up her greater health conditions, but of course, like you'll never, I'll never forget that element of the story. Right. Um, No, of course not. But it's one of those things that like, for some reason, I can't tell the story without punishing myself by saying that out loud again. Um, But she went to go walk the dog and the dog fucking, you know, bailed after a squirrel or some shit, pulled her down. She broke her hip. And she, the ambulance picked her up. She never went back in her apartment. The ambulance picked her up right there across the street from her apartment and took her to the hospital. And then she, she, her heart wasn't strong enough to survive the, the surgery to repair the hips. So she died uh, on the table in the hospital and we got to see her, you know, I did actually, I was on my way when she walked the fucking dog. (laughs) But when I got off the train, there was a message from Al Victory, who was one of the Attica brothers telling me that, that she had fallen and was in the hospital. So we went to the hospital and saw her and she's laying there in the hospital bed and she's holding my hand and she's begging me to promise her that I will finish processing all this material and I'll put it on the internet. We had already been through about half the, the archive at that point. Um, So, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, she didn't have, you know, time to set it down in paper that this stuff was mine, but it was very clear that this stuff was mine and she had told Pearl that this is what I was doing. And, um, and she made me promise her that I would, you know, preserve this archive and make it available to the world. And I did just that. So I've never had to promise anybody anything on their fucking deathbed, dude. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. That's never no. happened to me before. Um, I don't expect it to happen I've again. Never, I've never but, been at a deathbed before, <clears throat> but it was a very, you know, it is something that like, I am proud of the movie and I love the movie and I'm 
proud obviously to have my movie on hbo and like you know it's a very it's very validating to sort of finish that process and and get the sort of love that i've gotten from it and um you know the meanest thing that i've the meanest comment that i've seen on the internet which doesn't mean it's the meanest comment but the meanest comment that i've seen on the internet said this movie is so well made it will make you think it's true (laughs) right (laughs) which is like somebody who is like basically right you know it's somebody who's like basically writing from a pro-police standpoint and and didn't feel like i took the police seriously enough well that's actually you know sort of a compliment isn't it well but question i I had i want to just to take a step back the question i had about the the uh, all the documents and the video and why i was asking if she left it to you or whatever is i when how do you go about verifying or basically finding out if you are allowed to use this material for a documentary? How did you go about doing that? Well, I, I don't know still that I'm allowed to, because nobody ever responded to me. Nobody uh-huh. ever answered my okay. question. Interesting. So I am allowed by the fact that nobody has told me no. And I've asked several people and tried several times to be told no. <laughs> um, I've heard that this material is under like a gag rule that's supposed to last until 2071. <clears throat> but I've only like heard that a couple of times. And it was never really anything sort of official. It was just sort of people telling me what they had heard. I've asked, you know, I've I've talked to the New York State Archive. I've talked to the New York State Police. And when I say talk to, I mean more like talked at, you know, like I've I've interviewed, I've asked questions, I've sent emails and stuff. And most 90 percent of the time, it's just ignored altogether. Like I just don't it's just total radio silence. And when I do get a response, they basically just kind of say, like, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't know where you got that. Like that shit's not real or whatever. Like it's just sort of, it's a very uh, weird. Cause in order for them to comment on it or yeah, to comment on it would be to give it some validity. To acknowledge that it yeah. exists. Yeah. yeah. And so it was That's a different sort of even acknowledge it. Well, and it was, it's an interesting sort of thing because, you know, Heather Thompson wrote Blood in the Water, right? Which won the Pulitzer in 2017 for, it's about Attica. And she, if you like, just, you know, because I know her now, you know, and, and we've worked on the memorials together last year and, and you know, have talked about our projects together and stuff. And, and she also worked on um, Stanley Nelson's documentary for Showtime that has been nominated for an Academy Award, by the way. Yeah. Um, and is, you know, it's really interesting. This, I don't know uh, Stanley Nelson. I, I provided material to his team because I have this archive, you know, so I provided material to them and, and like had some communication with associate producers and stuff, but it was completely unplanned. But our two movies really are um, just the exact opposite yeah. sides of the same coin. Yeah they're really complimentary um, in a lot of ways. You know, I don't, I don't have any Attica brothers in my movie and he doesn't have Liz. Right. (laughs) And, and it's not because he doesn't know how important Liz was. And it's not because I didn't know how important the Attica brothers are. Like these are sort of choices that we made that fit our styles, especially if you have seen any other things we've done, it would make even more sense, but it just sort of ended up that he and I really made projects that are perfect sort of, um, stylistic opposites 
you know, um, and really complementary in a lot of, of cool ways. So um, le- I want to get down into some of the nitty gritty questions of making this movie, Mike Hull. Mm. How long did it take you to make this movie? When, like when you started with the intention, it doesn't have to be you shot something. I'm saying in your mind, when did you start making this movie? I, it only became clear to me that there was really a whole movie when I saw the archive. So it really started when I saw the archive and then it took me when was about that? three. It's that would have been 2012. Okay. Um, and then it took me about three years. No, that would have, no, that would have been 13. And then, yeah, that would have been 13. Cause I finished the archive in 16 after she had died. Um, so yeah, it took me three years to digitize the archive and part of that and, you know, and like organize it and sort of make sense out of it and like know what was there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is because of just how much material that was. Part of it is because like I had to buy new equipment and like learn how to scan slides. There was a lot of VHS material and, you know, I had to sort of process all and you know how like digitizing a VHS tape, like if the VHS tape has any sort of, breaks or dust or like if if it's not a sort of perfect tape then it it messes up the digital ingest and so you end up having to sort of start over and back things it's like and these tapes had been sitting in her closet for 30 years 35 years you know so they were a fucking mess bro <laughs> so like digitizing that stuff and sort of making getting it that took three years and what happened in that time i did the interview with liz because after I'd been doing it for about a year, she sat for the interview. She seemed to feel like I was taking it sufficiently seriously and had learned enough that she sat for the interview. And that interview was like, how long was it? Like two hours? About it. It was, it was, it was an hour and 26 minutes. So you had an hour and 26 minutes of an interview with her. And how long is the final film? An hour and 26 minutes. Interesting. Yeah, there's some stuff that it actually, and there's, you know, I cut out, I mean, I made a movie, you know, I cut out a bunch of stuff from the interview. Which is also a perfect length for a film. Good job. It's just, I, yes, (laughs) I agree, dude. I agree, actually. I think it's, I was really happy. A little over, a little over. I was, I was really happy with the 86. We cut it Um, for the, uh, for the remix. There you go. Um, So... That's interesting by the time, to me because it's so, so much so, of the, I mean, it is like that in the, because in many ways the film is like that interview is the film. Right. And I think the, the purity film. of that is great. I think that you stuck like that. You stuck with that is great. I like movies like that, yeah. man. And that's yeah. a style choice. I like movies Good. where you just yeah, talk you to one make person. Choices. That's what being a director is. Right. You just talk to one person, but you, in, when you just talk to one and very dude, I mean, how, who makes it? Errol Morris is the only person to think of who really does that like on a semi-regular basis, you know? Um, but when you talk to when you really only listen to one person and of course there's, there's news clips and there's other things edited into it. Hers yes. isn't literally the only voice that you hear, but hers is the through line. And to me, when, when you make that choice, it, it, 
it, it allows me to sort of like dig into and understand and sort of rhythmically grasp this person in a way that you just can't when a movie's sort of dipping between several different voices. When it's going between all these different voices and, and you're sort of needing to take everybody equally seriously. Yeah, like to yeah. me, your brain sort of stays on point in a way that when it's just, you know who you're listening to and every time that per, and this is all like you're following subliminal. the story instead of the just experience. trying to find the best. Yeah. No, and it's noise. like, it's more like, that's right. It's Sound more bite. like someone is telling you a story yeah. and less like a, someone has made a movie about a story. Like how long did it take you, know, you, once you figured out that that was going to be the movie, how long did it take you to edit it? And what were the challenges in editing it? Was it deciding what material to use or getting material that you further stuff that you thought you needed? What were the well, challenges? I made so I made two choices before I started really editing. I had done some sort of like, you know, little ideas and little concept chops but before i started really editing i made two choices which is to only use liz's interview i wasn't going to go interview anybody else because i had now listened to it a hundred times you know what i mean like i pumped out just the audio by itself i used to listen to it while i was running like i'd listened to this interview so many times that i felt like it was enough you know like there was enough there and so then i also made the decision to only use material from her archive so as I'm like setting up, you know, the story, like in sort of what was happening with civil rights and what was happening with the anti-war protests. And as I'm setting up the, the context of Attica, I use stuff that wasn't, you know, in her right. archive, obviously, because her archive was focused on Attica. And as I'm talking about policing today and the way the sort of philosophy of Attica has become the overall philosophy of policing in the United States, I'm obviously using material that wasn't in her archive because it's it has happened after Attica. Right. But that leaves about, you know, 80 of the 86 minutes or something. I mean, the, the bulk of the movie, you know, is. Maybe it's more like 70, but the bulk of the movie, I made the decision to just use material from her archive. So, you know, I mean, bro, you're the person that showed me five obstructions, right? Like, I mean, when you kind of set up that, you know, these kind of structures and these guideposts for yourself, in a way, it makes the decision making actually yeah. easier. Yeah, a lot. Um you know, it limits the amount of sort of material and it, and it makes you sort of make tough choices about what of that stuff really is necessary and, and how it all kind of goes together. And so what my movie, another one of my favorite movies that I've ever, ever, ever made, ever seen in my life, I didn't make, is June 17, 1994. Did you ever see that? It's a 30 for 30. It's one of the ESPN 30 for 30 movies. One of the original 30, I think, about the day that O.J. Simpson Oh, uh, yeah. Hell yeah. In the Bronco chase. Right. Yes. And that entire movie, dude, there's not one interview. There's not one piece of narration. The entire movie yeah. That's is like found the, um, audio. Like right. The, uh, the recent documentary that won best doc. What was it on the was it on um, the moon landing? Was it Apollo? I think Apollo 11. They did. Today. Well, oh, I know what you're talking about. I didn't see there's that. No, there's no narrator. There's no interviews. It's all just using stock footage. I love NASA that. footage to build the narrative of it. It might have been the same guy who directed that now that I say that. You want to know I something? Love that. I think that might have been the same guy. 
I love that style so much, dude. And it's so hard to do. It's really hard. It's really complicated to to figure out how to tell your story out of pieces that weren't recorded for your story. Right. But when I made that decision to do that with Liz, it was, and this is, you, you will appreciate this. It, it was an organic flowering from the fucking effort. Right. Like, which, I mean, those are a lot of like, you know, it sort wasn't of corny the same words. Guy. Sorry to interrupt. It wasn't, you, but it no, wasn't. It's all right. But it was the guy who made Dinosaur 13, which was like that, which was a great documentary. Yeah. I don't know if you saw um, that. It, it's, it's by, because when I started out with this process, I'm sitting there fucking smoking a reefer with Liz and she's telling me all these stories. And at some point she starts to sound fucking nuts. Right. And I know that when she's telling me about the literal things that happened and the numbers and stuff like that, I know she's got that shit, right. You know, she worked on this for a long time. She's a lawyer. She's not an idiot. But when she starts talking about how the planning went up to Rockefeller and even to Nixon and that they were doing all of this to make a point because they were tired of fucking protests and all these fucking hippies and all this shit. This is when she starts to sound like, like just somebody who's sort of been like, you know, sitting in sort of the rooms having these conversations for so long that it starts to sound kind of like, all right, you know, all right, stoner, right? Like there's a point at which it starts to sound like she's really getting into hyperbole. But then, man, I'm doing all this research on my own. You know what I mean? I'm doing this. I'm, I'm, I'm processing all of this archive. And while I'm doing that, like, okay, if I'm going to make this movie, you know how it is. You got to watch every movie. You got to read every book. You got to listen. You know what I mean? Dude, when you're doing your research, you got to do it. You know, you got to make sure you're not sort of, leaving anything that you don't know about you know and so and then heather thompson's book comes out and like and as i am doing all of my own research around this stuff it turns out dude literally everything she said was true the craziest shit was all absolutely true and so one of the 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 things that one of the things that i of the interviews that i did with her because that there's only one on-camera interview but there were actually two interviews but one of them was audio only. Right. And in the movie, of course, you can't tell, you know, I just used B-roll over the parts where there's no video. Right. Um, But what we did was we sat down and watched the McKay commission film. And that was the film that was made by PBS, the New York PBS station using, you know, with uh, Robert McKay, who is the Dean of NYU law and who was actually appointed by the governor of New York to do a whole investigation and figure the whole thing out. Right. And so they, so I had a copy of this movie. It was in her archive. And once I digitized it, I sat down with her and we watched the McKay film. And I basically had her do like a director commentary on this documentary. Right. Only instead of just letting it go, like you do, I would pause it you know, because I'm recording audio and I want her to just sort of be able to talk. And then I'd start the movie back up. And so as we're sitting here watching this thing, man, she is responding to the movie. Yeah, The movie will say Very something smart. and then she will like, oh, bullshit. And then she'll tell you, you know, da, 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 right. And so she's actually in conversation with this film. And that ended up becoming really, really valuable to me because I was able to sort of reconstruct that in a way that actually went opposite in the way it when you watch it in the movie to the way it went in real life which is that i would play something from the mckay film if you watch my movie you'll see a little bit from the mckay film and then you will hear her reaction to it 
right? And it actually went the opposite direction in real life, where like it would sort of, you know, it would just get started in the film, and she would already know what they're going to say. So she would just fucking go on a rant about, you know, how all of that came to be. That's right? a really good technique, Mike, because then you're basically kind of like giving her an opportunity to be. Uh, to have something ex- get her excited, get her into it, get her involved, something to bounce ideas off of instead of you like maybe you sitting there and doing more interview, right? Like it's a, right. an alternate way to get her to talk about the subject. It's actually, you know, that's what they do on reality TV shows. They show them clips, yeah. baby. In the moment, ITM, <laughs> right. they, they show them the clip and then they comment on it. That's when you're watching a reality show. That's why they're always wearing like the same shit during the whole season almost, or probably sometimes <laughs> they'll get in a couple of changes, you know, but they don't want it because you, you'll see it anyway because it's progressive, but they, that same, they do that same thing. That's very smart. That's really cool. So how long did it take you to edit it? Uh, so it took, it took three years to do the, the digitizing. And then it took, I would say four years to finish the edit. And the first couple of years was, and of course, you know, like I've got a job and I'm making other movies and like, you know, I'm doing lots of sort of other things in the meantime. This is not your full-time job. Right. And, and also, you know, I need time to process it. And it is just like heavy state violence, dude. I mean, it's literally just cops walking up to people and shooting them in the fucking face. Like, it's like, it's really heavy stuff. And, and so, and, and when you work on this kind of stuff every day, like it does end up taking a toll on you that you sort of don't realize until like your wife or somebody else is like, Hey, are you okay? You seem sad today. And it's like, no, I'm fine. I've been staring at autopsy photos yeah. for 10 hours. Well, you did have some but experience I'm fine. <laughs> with that at uh, CBS, though. Yeah, and right? that was why I quit that, that job. Kind of, right. That's right. That's right. And that was why I quit that, why I really, I mean, I quit that job because I got another exciting opportunity, but why I was ready to quit that job and why I had already been thinking of quitting and why I was looking for another opportunity is because when you are working in the national fucking CBS network hub and you're feeding news stories to literally the entire world, whenever somebody goes into an elementary school or a nightclub and shoots up everybody in the fucking building, I have to sit there and look at all the footage and I have to sit there and cut, you know, the screaming out of the 911 calls when the teachers call 911, because we're going to use some of that call, but we can't use the gunshots part. We can't use the children screaming in the background. We can't use the bloody fucking people on the floor of the nightclub. Right. And so I have to cut the blood out. It's just like fucking dude. I've told you the story. The fucking two worst days of my entire career were, you know, a week before the 10th anniversary of 9-11 when I had to sit down with all the fucking, you know, 9-11 security footage and all the camera footage and cut the jumpers because everybody wants new B-roll. Everybody wants something they've never seen before for the 10th anniversary, which means sitting there and going back through it. But you can't show any blood and you can't show anybody jumping. So I had to sit there for two days and cut jumpers out of 9-11 footage. And it impacts you, dude. I walked home the second day and cried for like three fucking miles. <laughs> like, and, and, at, and this is the thing is there are people who work in that job who can just do that job and then go home 
and they do it well and they take it seriously and it doesn't impact their humanity. And for many of us, you know, I had to make a choice of like, am I going to become a person who can do this work because it's important, not because, you know what I mean? Like, not just for whatever, a fucking union insurance, but I do actually think it's an important job and it's important to have people who care about it doing that job. Am I going to become a person who can look at dead kids all day and then go home and act like I'm going to have a real fucking life? Or am I going to become a person who actually in my second half of my life decides to lean into those feelings of sadness when a whole fucking, you know, room full of people gets murdered, right? Even if I can't do anything about it, am I going to, right? Like I have to make a choice for myself as a person. And I had to make the choice of like, I need to be impact. I need to allow myself to be impacted by these things. I need to work on trying to do something about them or memorialize them or, you know what I mean? I need to, in some way, deal with this in a different way than you deal with it in a sort of corporate news environment, which is also important. And I, I think that that speaks to asking like how long things take, how long a documentary takes for you to sift through it and understand it and kind of still be able to feel it. Because if you had to, I know you and I know how fast you can work. And if somebody said, hey, we need to have this by next week, you could probably edit it in a week. <laughs> I've made I've made feature documentaries you know? from concept to from concept to release within right. in less than two time. years. So once but you, those are like projects that I'm not that they don't have the same kind of gravity. Yeah, you exactly. know, you have to feel feel your way through it. So once you made it. And also, by the way, we're telling a story about a bunch of white people murdering a bunch of black and brown people. There are other social elements wrapped up in this. We're talking about a bunch of like poor people murdering each other because Rockefeller told them to. This is also like there are a lot of sort of cultural elements, you know, that are wrapped up in this project that we are still living with and dealing with today. And when I say we, I don't just mean the two fucking middle-aged white guys in this conversation, right? So that's another thing where, like, if you're doing a project about, like, some funky artist and the fun art that they make, it's not the same as doing a project about murder and state-sanctioned violence and war. And that was something that I really had to learn, too, was that I can't be sort of driving myself nuts to maintain the sort of pace that I normally maintain because this subject matter is so much more important. I need to take the time to make sure I'm doing it right. I need to show it to a bunch of people. I need to, you know, and that was one, sorry, I know you had another, one thing that I think you will appreciate the first two years of me making the movie was just me telling this story about Liz and Attica. And then I showed it to some people. And one of the people that I showed it to was a guy named Josh Bishop, who's been a friend of mine for a long time. I met Josh driving trucks on fucking Oreo commercials. You know, like we've been both talking about the things we want to do with each other for a long time. And then he made a couple of great docs. He made a movie called Made in Japan um, about a Japanese country artist, you know, and, and got her on Jimmy Kimmel and all this other like fun stuff, you know, and, and premiered at South by Southwest, you know, and all these cool things. And, and so I sent him this movie and I was like, Hey, I'm making this movie, you know, what do you think? And he was really disappointed in the movie that I had made. And, you know, I had to take him seriously because he knows what he's talking about, 
and he knows how important this is to me, you know, and so on and so forth. So for him to say that to me was meaningful. And what he said was, I kept waiting for the part where you told where you put in the movie, like all the stories you told me, like about when she walked you around the corner and you see all the boxes and you're smoking reefer with this crazy fucking paranoid hippie lady. It turns out everything she said was true. And you know what I mean? He's like, where is all that shit in the movie? None of that's in the movie. And I was like, well, that's about me. The movie's not about me. The movie's about her. And he's like, no, that's totally fucking wrong, dude. The movie is about your experience of her. The movie is about your experience of Attica. And you have to remember that most of the people who are going to be seeing it don't know anything about Attica. So experiencing Attica through the eyes of a person who doesn't know anything about it, but somehow just magically has this fucking you know, super just sort of thing happened to them where suddenly they just go right to the heart of the matter. That by itself is interesting and is relevant. And you got to put all that in the movie. And so at that point I had to like, cause you know, like I said, originally the movie didn't have any narration. I did have an interview, but I didn't have any narration, right? Like June 17th, 1994, my favorite movie. But as it went, you know, he really convinced me that, that, that the best way to tell this story and the thing that is really original to me and the thing that sort of helps an, a younger audience connect to it, people who weren't alive in 1971, right, and don't remember that news footage, is going to be this story of discovery. Um, and that was a big, that took me, dude, that took me a year to get that idea under my hat and really feel comfortable with it and incorporate it into the, um, the movie in a way that I felt was honest well and i can the I, film. I can understand that because knowing you and having us work together for a long time neither of us like that idea both of us would watch documentaries and be like why did the fucking director have to show up in this thing like, <laughs> we know you directed it your name's on the front of it dude you know yep. like you're, you're it's not about you but and when you initially told me that, I, I think I even said to you, I was like, are you sure about that? <laughs> like, uh, but it worked out great because everything's different and you got to sometimes you do the thing you never thought you were going to do because it works for that project. Um, once you got it to a point where you felt it was done, what could, I, I, I mean, I know the story of how you sold it and all that kind of stuff. What I mean, you share what you want to share about it because I think it's an interesting story and I think it speaks to also being part of the whole experience itself because over the time from when you finished it, there were a lot of different people who saw it at, or were going to see it. And just can you talk a little bit about how is that experience when you finish something and you know you have something great? How did you get it out there? Well, I mean, it's really like, and you know, we've, you, you hear this, you've heard this a hundred times and it's just like so frustrating when it's actually happening to you and you're not just reading about it happening to somebody else, but it's a story of rejection. This film has been rejected by the Sundance organization at literally every level at which a film can exist. They, they rejected the concept and then uh, I found out from our international team that the Sundance channel recently rejected the film to, to show on their, <laughs> their channel. Right. And I've applied to them for fucking support at literally every level that a film can exist. And they've said, no, this movie was rejected over a hundred times for funding by festivals, by, you know, I mean, just 
the only people who worked on the movie in any sort of capacity were people that I already had a relationship with um, prior to working on the movie. Um, and then, you know, there was, I got a little bit of money to, and, you know, sort of financial support from friends of Liz's and by a little bit, I mean, like, I like five or $10,000 or something like that. You know, the film took eight years total to, to make. So obviously like I wasn't eating off that 10 grand. I was buying, you know, um, slide, slide, uh, uh, scanners and shit like that. So, so it was, you know, but the people who, but the people who did like it, uh, were people that I had enormous amounts of respect for. You know, I'm getting rejected by the Sundance community, but the the activists and, you know, the sort of peace activists and, and the police activists. And, you know, like I said, like this is dealing with sensitive shit. I'm not just going to be a white person out here talking about black people dealing with police and not show it to any black people before it's out in public. I'm not going to do that. Like I'm not, you know, so I showed the movie to a lot of different people that that I had a lot of respect for. And in some cases, people that I had a lot of love for. And in every case, people who would not be sort of ashamed to tell me, you know, or, 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 you know, quiet about telling me what I had gotten right or wrong, you know, and in every case, those people loved it. All of Liz's friends loved the movie. (laughs) Right. And like hearing that from somebody who knew her for 50 fucking years was really validating, was really meaningful. You know, they know how she told those stories. And all of them across the board, every single one of Liz's friends has told me, like, you nailed Liz. That's how she told those stories. That was, you know, this would have been the movie that she would have liked. Like, all, and that is extremely validating, dude. But I can, you know, you can't eat that shit. You know what I mean? You can't, you can't feed your kid off a fucking a nice email from one of Liz's friends, you know? So it was this, it was a really sort of frustrating and interesting and complicated. And, and, you know, it was a hell of a process of being rejected by the people who can really do something about it, but getting so much love from the people who understand it, but can't do anything about it. Um, And I really didn't know what I was going to do with it. I didn't know. I really had no idea sort of where it was going to end up. I had had a couple of, of offers, but they were not things that I was, sort of happy with they weren't things that I felt were going to work um just because they were like the movie was going to be sort of situated with you know like horror films and stuff you know what I mean these weren't really sort of like places that were you know known for being able to work with documentaries and they were excited about the film there's a couple of them and they really enjoyed and, and like actually understood the film but I wasn't sure that they could do something with a documentary or they had you know the sort of um market that could could work with that and so i it's like you know as but what are you gonna do right like i mean otherwise i'm gonna put it on youtube for free i don't know what i'm gonna do with it you know and then um in the summer of 2020 uh i joined an anti-racist working group um sort of at the behest of a friend of ours a mutual friend of ours and you know i've been doing anti-racist work for a long time you know, and I didn't plan to join this group because I sort of felt like it was I was already sort of beyond whatever was going to be happening in this group and that I should just sort of stick to what I was doing, you know. Um, but for several reasons, not just, you know, one person, but for several reasons, anti, I sort of the anti-racist group, Mike. 
I mean, I was anti. I felt like I was going to be teaching a lot of people in this group. Right. Fair enough. But I felt like I was going to be teaching a lot and I didn't want to go there to teach. That wasn't really something. Let me guess. You were the one who actually learned. Uh, I wasn't the only one, but I did. But I fucking a did, dude. I absolutely three o'clock in the move in the afternoon movie uh, learned it, it. You know, I I what I was afraid of was that I was going to have to sort of show up and like, you know, these guys are just going to be stroking each other off for fucking reading, you know, watching the thirteenth or something, right? That they weren't really going to be trying to actually do anything, even have any actual conversations. And that was not the case. Like when I showed up, it turned out that everybody in this group, and it was like 11 or 12 guys, the initial group, everybody in this group had at least had the moment where they were like, oh, like everything is at least a little bit racist. Like everything, right, is is touched by this history in one way or another. Um, and as long as you've had that moment, you know, then I feel like we can sort of have a conversation, right? Like if I'm if I have to convince you of that thing, it's much that feels like a waste of my time, you know, but that wasn't the case here. Everybody had had that moment. So what we were doing was sort of talking about what people specifically what white men can do, um, you know, to start sort of working on this process. And each one of us was in a different place in our lives with whether or not we were really engaging with anti-racist work. But everybody was at least engaging with anti-racist thought. Um, and one of the guys in that group uh, turns out had a hell of a, a career in television and, and had a lot of contacts and knew a lot of people. And he's not exactly retired, but he's kind of consulting now. You know what I mean? He's not really like sort of in the trenches in the way that he used to be. But he knows a lot of people and he's still selling some stuff. And he's, you know, and I didn't know any of that about him. I just knew him from this group. And at some point I mentioned the movie and he was like, I like movies. Can I watch your movie? Yeah, you watch my movie, you know, right? It was just, it was an extremely casual thing. And that's the thing is like, we get this, we sort of hear like, you know, you got to go to all this networking and you got to call this person. You got to bug the shit out of them. You got to follow up. You got, you know what I mean? You got to do all these things to make that, you know, and it's all this anxiety. It's a never ending series of bullshit that you're supposed to do in order to make these things happen, you know? And this was just like, this guy that I barely knew was like, yo, can I watch your movie? And I was like, yeah, whatever. And I sent him the fucking link and didn't think nothing else about it. And the next time I talked to him, he was like, this movie's incredible. I can sell it in 10 minutes if you'll let me. Like, what is happening with this movie? What is your distribution? And he filled me in on his backstory. And I was like, dog, that sounds great. You know, like I got a couple of things, but nothing that I'm really like that excited about right now. You know, I'd love to hear whatever you, you know, whatever you find out, whatever you have to say. But still to me, even as he's sort of telling me his background, it feels sort of casual because he's like, yeah, I sell this shit in 10 minutes. And I'm like, that's, <laughs> you don't know what you're up against my friend. And I didn't say that, you know what I mean? I don't want to like tell him like, yeah, right. You know? Um, and then he took it to every place you've heard of, you know, every platform you've heard of and, and a dozen you've never heard of, you know? Um, I mean, he, he really did a lot of work to spread it around. Um, and he got, rejected pretty consistently by several very respectable people that he had relationships with. And in that way, I sort of felt like, well, at least it's not just like my inability to like work the room. And you know what you I mean? Think, do you think in your mind, was that because of the, the 
content of it. But yeah, spoiler alert. There's yeah. like a four minute montage of the police murdering people without provocation. Well, just, <laughs> that is, yeah, just the last not, thing that happens uh, in the movie. Not the not just the violent content I mean, but also controversial and or political charge. Well, yeah, you're gonna call it. It has many well, that's what I, to it. That's what I mean. Is like yeah. the, it is very violent, but like at the end of the movie, I make a very direct relation between the philosophy that brought that led to Attica and the philosophy that has led to so many of these abuses of modern policing. And in the same way that Attica was, you know, was, it's not like every day in the United States in 1971, you know, prison guards were murdering 40 people, right? Like, obviously, it's an aberration in number. And obviously, today, not every cop walks out of the house and goes and murders somebody. It's but the philosophies that are in place that allow these things to continue to happen were the same. They are the same. And and modern policing has very consciously drawn on the example of Attica to consciously, like this is part of the research that I did, right? Like they've consciously drawn on the, you know, the response to Attica and the way sort of everything worked out from Attica as an element of modern policing. And you know, I'm very direct and very clear about that. And I do think that the fact that, you know, I don't interview any police, you know, Liz talks, I mean, just horribly about the power structure from the top to the bottom, from the, you know, the lowest guy all the way up to the president. And I have a phone call with John Rockefeller being congratulated by Nixon for what a great job he did on that day. Like it really does literally go up to the president and there's tape. It's not like this is speculation, right? And it's just those kinds of projects just aren't supported, no. you know? And and it's one of those things where it can very easily, like it's very easy for it to sound like sour grapes. You know what I mean? Like, oh, the Sundance people just no, don't fucking like don't, me or whatever, I right? I don't think so at all. But and to me- Just talking the truth, dude, that- Well, that, this is a clear and present analysis no. of the way American government and media has always worked. You're allowed to criticize them a little bit in the ways that they approve. And if you go outside of criticizing them in the ways that they approve, or if you criticize especially their philosophy, the philosophy of how they do things, we're supposed to believe that it was just a handful of errant, you know, cops and FBI guys that murdered. I mean, they shot hundreds of bullets into Fred Hampton's apartment while he was asleep next to his pregnant wife. (laughs) Like, it's not, you know, we're supposed to think that that was just like a couple of guys that got all fucking worked up. And went and did something they weren't supposed to, as opposed to the philosophy of, of the organization. Well, I think that when and, you have that in when you're talking about that in terms of a film or TV, I think oftentimes these places, even the streaming services, I mean, spoiler alert, we know that you ended up having it be on the best. When you told me, I was like, that's the best, dude. It's HBO. And that's why HBO became what they are is because they would show something that would otherwise someone would think like it would be on PBS or something, right? Like it's like I mean, Bill Moyers. It's a it's hard like a Noam Chomsky. Right. <laughs> it's not an right? easy like, watch. It's That's too right. real. It's, too real. Not it's not an easy watch enough. for a lot of people, yeah, but if, if you've seen, well, if you've seen exterminate all the brutes, 
you know, which was made by Raul Peck, who made yeah, I'm so Not Your so Negro, um, which is a movie that a lot of people might have heard of. It was a James Baldwin movie about James Baldwin um, or sort of written by James Baldwin. It's a cool movie. It's really cool. And, you know, Peck's I mean, he's he's been doing it for a long time. He's a master of the fucking craft. And HBO had just um, paid for and they hadn't released yet when we first started hearing from them. But they had just paid for and or they had paid for and were producing. And I knew it was going to come out Exterminate All the Brutes, which is a four part um, series that explores colonialism, like global colonialism. It's specifically, he talks about the Congo a lot and and, um, and it's about the philosophy of white supremacy and the way it impacts us now. And I mean, it's just a, it's an absolute fucking masterwork. It's also four hours long, but it's also a documentary that has Josh Brolin in it. Yeah. Who's like, you know, playing uh, like sort of a history. He's like, yeah, Josh Brolin plays white supremacy so. through the history, right? Through yeah. history. Like, I mean, it's a fucking masterwork, dude. It's absolutely fantastic. And if he pulled punches, I can't tell you where they were at. I can't tell you what they were because it feels to me like there were no punches pulled. And if, you know, it's, it's less of a surprise that Raul Peck is not going to pull any punches talking about colonialism, white supremacy, than it is that any platform will let him get away with that. Not only did they let him get away with that, they paid Josh Brolin to help him do it. <laughs> right. So like to, to when we, you know, as soon as they saw it, and this was the one thing, and this is what I meant before when I was saying like Sundance is rejecting it at the same time that all the activists and Liz's friends and all the police activists that I know all love it. All these other places are rejecting it. And HBO Max, the you know, the lady that that does documentaries for HBO, the first time she watched it, her first response was, This is incredible. I want it. You know, there yeah, was various reasons why they couldn't just sort of do that right there off the bat. Um, so it took a little while to sort of put together. Um, but it was one of those things where it was like the very first time they saw it, she understood the movie immediately she loved it immediately she wanted it immediately and like i'm like you just did exterminate all the brutes and she's like and i'll put your shit right next to it <laughs> like yeah. i mean did that they ask you to change anything or did you have to change anything dude they said you are welcome to do whatever you want to the movie we're happy with it as it is that's awesome the only change there were some changes that were made, but they were changes that I had intended to make all along that I just sort of hadn't had time to, or I didn't want to. Like I had to update the the montage at the end. I didn't have George Floyd in the montage um, because you know, dude, when you're going to add this stuff, like you got to sit with it. Yeah. You know what I mean? You got to spend time with it. You got to like learn the rhythm of the footage, right? I didn't want to learn the rhythm of the George Floyd footage until I had to, you know. So there were some little things that I did, but it was nothing from request from them. They were super cool about it. It's unlike any experience I've ever had. Now that we have been talking for a while, so I think I'm going to start. This is me wrapping things up a little bit. Now <laughs> That's my transition into it. Now that the movie has been out since August and people right now, you can go watch it on HBO Max, Betrayal at Attica. What kind of response have you gotten? I know that you continue. I mean, the archive continues. I know you continue to work with a lot of the people involved. What have you been up to 
past it being released and how does it, I mean, congratulations and all that. I've already told you that, but I'll say it on the podcast, live, <laughs> our podcast. Um, what have you been up to with it since? What's the response been? Uh, I mean, it's been, you know, the, the movie came out August 1st. The 50th anniversary was September 13th. So um, I was in New York for the anniversary and, you know, all the Attica brothers, a lot of the Attica brothers have seen the movie at this point. Um, you know, the, the reaction has just been really overwhelmingly positive. Um, it's very hard. It's a very hard movie about a hard subject. So it's a weird thing to sort of talk to people about because nobody can just be like, oh, I liked your movie. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> you didn't like the fucking movie. It was terrible. It was just well made. You know what I mean? It's one of those things of like, it's very hard film to compliment. Yeah um just sort of because of the nature of it because of how hard it is but what that actually it's like when a bad to, parent dies like, kind of congratulations <laughs> your mom's dead i mean i know you're happy but it's i feel weird saying it but, but right you know? you know yeah well and and you know how it is when you sort of put something out and it's very sort of easy for people to say like oh i like your thing you know what i mean and then sort of very quickly move on to the weather you know, but in this situation, because it's such a hard movie to sort of talk about and a particularly hard movie to compliment, even though everyone agrees it's very well made, it's very effective. The editing is dope as shit. The music's great. Like if in all the sort of checklist, you know, markers, except for the emotional and historical elements, it's great, you know. And, and so it actually forces people to talk about it in a much more interesting way because they can't just be like, oh, I liked your movie. It was cool. You know, and that has actually been really fascinating for me. The conversations I've had about it, even with people I don't know, have been much deeper and much more interesting and much more sort of everybody's got to tell me about this one time they've, you know, they dealt with some fucked up cop you know, or their fucking cousin who was in prison or, you know, everybody's got to tell me some story about when they interacted with the justice system and how they got screwed by it, you know? And that's been another thing that's been really remarkable is just how many, and people you don't expect, you know, I don't know who you, what you think a criminal looks like, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Right. But I mean, so many people have told me this story that they, about this one time and this one shitty cop, you know? So it's been really like, it's been very gratifying. Everybody who knew Liz has said that she would have loved it. That of course is really gratifying. And, you know, I've also gotten about a half a dozen people who've reached out to congratulate me on getting nominated for an Oscar, which is like, you didn't watch either say, movie, did you? You, <laughs> when, you didn't watch you, my movie or Stanley's movie. <laughs> when, when originally, when you told me this was going to be on HBO, I think the first thing I said was, you're going to get an Oscar, man. And I still think your movie was his movie is great. I still think yours is better. I, uh, but I think that you benefit from that though. Right. I mean, like that is happened. I bet more people are that. And that's a I, good thing because more people to get assume, to find the story, right? Like it's I not, you know, assume, I don't, well, think and this is the other thing, dude. Like, I don't feel like our, my movie is in competition no, or I am like in competition said, yeah. with Stanley Nelson I mean, I have to in say any that, way. Of course, yes. This is a man who has had 
a forty-year fucking yeah. career, and it's totally who different has done, movie too. It's a it's it's totally, a totally it's, different movie. It's a totally yeah. different style. Like it's covering the same event, but how many fucking there were like six movies that came out about the L.A. riots on the twenty-fifth anniversary, exactly. right? And all of them were good. All of yeah. them. Yeah. I mean, all That's of them true. used that. A lot of them used very similar footage. But there's so much sort of going. This yeah, there was twelve hundred and eighty-one guys in that yard. There's twelve hundred different movies that could be made about the Attica Prison Rebellion. So yeah. the two of them that were made, in my f- opinion, genuinely are we're not both nominated for a, a best. Uh, well, picture. the thing yes, is, man, that guy has had an incredible career, dude. And this is something else: the team that he put together for that movie. He's got Heather Thompson, who's nominated for a Pulitzer. He interviewed every living Annika brother. He interviewed all the living lawyers. But Mike, he put together a production, dude, that is just that really. You want to talk about a production? Like he really deserves. To yes, be... of course, of course. Now I like my movie better because it's my shit. <laughs> it's dope go. as fuck. Are but you also, me? I was going to say my music is way better for you, one thing. I, that's exactly what I was going to say. I'm glad you said. See, you you read my mind. You have uh, the same person who did the score for this amazing film, Smokers, coming back. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Will is back to do. The music, the music is amazing, of course, man. He's well, and fantastic. I think, you know, yeah, and Will and, and Mike Mayer, who I think was, you know, a much smaller sort of part of the, 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 you know, the pot, um, that particular little crew when Smokers was coming out, but he's, you know, more sort of working with, with Will now. And they just, you know, it was one of those things where as soon as I was thinking about asking them, I looked at one of their, their most recent music videos And the most recent music video they had put out right before I asked them to score the movie had footage of Fred Hampton that I also used in their music video. (laughs) Right. So like they were obviously in a very similar sort of place mentally. Um, And what I really wanted was somebody who could make like a soundtrack to hell, bro. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I needed somebody who could make really like ominous frightening but also like metal on metal like grinding fucking you know i needed somebody who 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 could really who could who could handle a beat but could also make music to murder by yes you know and those guys know how to do that yeah it's very hard that is awesome all right mike i'm gonna wrap it up we could talk forever dude this has been a very fun i hope that we can do it again and I hope you do watch the new Game of Thrones show and come on the podcast and talk about it. I think you're going to watch it because there's dragons in it, man. Come on. Everybody loves dragons. Well, you know, I didn't expect it last time either, man. But yeah, like, you know, everything was you. in a very everything was in a very heavy point, you know, in my life yeah. when we started watching Game of Thrones before. And it really became so much fun. And you know this, dude, it was the same thing with Lost. Like, I enjoyed talking to everybody, you know, talking to Matt and everybody when we were doing the books. I enjoyed talking to everybody about it as much or sometimes more than I enjoyed watching the of thing. Of course, yeah. Right? Was that old, like, standing around the video store chopping it up? You know, that was what it felt like, right? Like, it felt like standing in the video store talking about directors, um, talking about movies. And I, I definitely, like... 
I need more of that in my life. So you may have convinced me already. There you go. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Thank you, Mike, for your time. What a great story. Go watch Betrayal at Attica. It is on HBO Max. It's fantastic. And in April, it's going to be available in okay. all the places off of HBO Max, actually. Um, in April, it'll be like on iTunes and it'll be in oh, nice. lots of... Uh, yeah, it'll be in okay. lots of other different different places for folks who don't have the you know the HBO. Will it continue contract. to be on HBO it, as well? It'll be on HBO Max for three years. Our contract with them right now is for three years, but part of that contract is a carve out for us to be able yeah. to. Because what They're I wanted to do, more. well, and what I wanted to be able to do is to start to to use screenings as yeah, sort of fundraisers you for yep. you know bail yep. funds yep. and stuff like that. That's awesome. Um, so, yeah. So if you don't have HBO Max, either just, you know, email me and I'll send you a link or wait until April and then you'll be able to buy it in lots of other places. That's fantastic. All right. Dude, Axel, it's great to talk to you, man. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Check us out again, DVRpodcast.com. I'm going to be back soon. I think Andy is going to come on next. And we're going to talk a little bit about Lego. I've been building a lot of Lego, Hall. A lot of Lego, baby. There's a big Lego thing happening in Portland. Bricks Cascade I'm going to go to. I'll have some pictures. And I think Andy and I are going to do a pod about that. But it's not until April when I'll be back every week with Heath. And we're going to be covering the final season of Better Call Saul. The both parts. It's going to take a little break. Starts in April. Then it goes to like June or something. It comes back in like July or August. Hopefully, either Westworld or the game, new Game of Thrones doesn't come out. Then I'll have to be doing like multiple podcasts a week. But uh, if it does, we'll have fun doing it. And until then, thank you for listening. Peace out, everybody. 